Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. While I'm interested in the frontiers defining the future of fashion, it's necessary to acknowledge a certain responsibility to and respect for the landscape of our past. Season 9 aims to understand the context our clothing has to our climate, our culture and our country. And in a world where fashion moves fast, examine how we can move forward and find a sense of self back in nature. This series will continue to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a grounded group of talented fashion professionals who share in their ability to work with nature as well as nurture and nourish it. Today, I'm chatting with Lucianne Tonti, fashion editor of The Saturday Paper, closet clinic columnist for The Guardian, and proud author of her newly released book, Sundressed. For Lucianne, fashion is not only beautiful, but also serious business, and she uses both her writing and her rhetoric to elucidate the significant systems that can move our thinking past just a buzzword of sustainability. Through her exploration of regenerative farming, understanding of our clothing's origin stories and advocacy of natural fibres, Lucianne sheds light onto her serious reverence for nature, her solemn respect for history and, of course, her sensational style. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Lucianne's story. Right, Lucianne, thank you so much for joining me today. As you know, I have been digesting and reading your new book, newly released book, Sundressed, and um, I found myself constantly reading and going, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think it's partly um, because partly because so much of what you write about identity um, and, you know, kind of the emotional connection to our clothing obviously resonates really strongly with me. Uh, But the other part is that there is a level of hope and optimism um, Mm. that is obviously (laughs) the premise of your beautiful book. Um, And I will get to Sundressed, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what I would like to do, as I do with all my interviews, is um, start with how your story and how it came to culminate in this lovely book. So um, I understand that you have uh, a very significant origin story of your own that has kind of dictated and lit the path for you in terms of a future in fashion. So do you (laughs) want to start off by sharing your birth story? Yeah. Gosh. So I was born, the story, the family myth is I was born at midnight on a Saturday night. Um, and my, um, uh, the guy who was delivering me, what's it called? Obstetrician. Obstetrician. The the obstetrician, he was at a dinner party. And so he arrived to deliver me wearing a tuxedo. (laughs) And, um, yeah, my love of fashion was, I don't know, kind of, I guess, prevalent all the way through my, um, childhood and, I started working for um, designers when I was kind of in my late teens and, you know, you kind of start at somewhere like Lolita. I don't know if you remember that. It was like an offshoot of like Bardot, like, oh, you right. know, very fast fashion. And yeah. then as yeah, I got older, I like graduated to like Scanlon and Theodore and then Josh Good and then um, 
uh, yeah, ended up, I worked for Willow for a while and then went over to Paris. Um, in the midst of this, I should say it wasn't quite so linear. I was studying, I studied politics, I studied media. I have a law degree <laughs> um, and I landed in London and I met a girl at a party one night and this was when I was really at a crossroads. I'd finished law school, I'd left to go to London and I was like, what am I going to do? Yeah. What am I going to do? Legal things or corporate things or fashion things. And I met a girl at a party on my first weekend in London and she got me a job at working for Wendy Rowe, who was the creative consultant for Burberry's beauty line. So she was their head makeup artist. And right. basically I was like her office manager slash PA. And um, I managed her offices in London and New York. And I was with her in high level product development meetings and backstage at all the runway shows. And I really got exposed to like um, the inner workings of luxury fashion in a very kind of intimate way, <clears throat> which was extremely lucky, like yeah. the kind of um, avenue. But I had written my honours thesis about sustainable fashion. Okay. And so I had this other force in the back of my mind all the time. And, and going back a step, your, <laughs> yeah. your family environment though, mm. like growing up, obviously you, because I, I did listen to your sister's <laughs> podcast yeah. with you, um, yeah. which was really, really lovely. But I think, um, you know, you, it, it, she was almost like teasing you that you had this bit of a reputation in the family, like, you know, being the fashion one, <laughs> yeah. but you've been surrounded by science your whole life, right? Your mum's a doctor, your dad was a scientist, your brother's yeah. a doctor, right? So yeah. how did that like, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I feel like we can see that it's come full circle, but as yeah. a little person, how did that, how did you define yourself in that group? Because there was four, four kids, right? Yeah, the, uh, my other brother's an engineer. Right. <laughs> um, I think though, I don't really, our family environment was so much about, it was very academic, but it was so much about storytelling and books. Yeah. Uh, and lots of kind of social justice debates were like the other thing that was running through. So that's where the kind of um, rigorous thinking about like, where do we really get to when we talk about sustainability mm. was like, I think it's kind of come from my dad was a philosopher slash scientist. Right. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, as a small person, I guess you just kind of are doing, I always was kind of interested in doing what I was very like, um, kind of headstrong and forthright and just interested in doing what I wanted to do. But I was very sporty when I was um, an adolescent. Like I was, <clears throat> I played like quite high level netball and was like athletics captain at my school. <laughs> I was like on the swimming team. I wasn't, the fashion stuff was probably in the background more through mm. my childhood. And maybe that's the product of the uh, in the academic environment where yeah the creative it's stuff a storytelling in its own kind of space for you yeah I can definitely the writing and the love of words has always been present mm. but probably I wouldn't say so much I mean maybe my sister has a different perspective <laughs> but from my perspective I don't think it was so much yeah there. it wasn't as loud in your mind no. in your childhood no, no, no. Um, you've described your mom as a quiet feminist in yeah. that she what I took from that was that she kind of lived the role of a strong woman that was able to you know be financially independent and successful in her own right but it wasn't necessarily um, you know preaching an ethos of like no yeah no, 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 of no feminism it was just living 
by example and that's what you might have taken from her. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, she was a doctor, you know, she's, she's been a doctor for almost 50 years now. Yeah. And so when you think about how the world's changed in those 50 years and kind of how few um, women were doctors back then, I think it's very interesting if you ever, most people who know me and then meet her are quite surprised because <laughs> and she's, um, she's a lot shorter than me <laughs> and, and she is quite, um, she's more softly spoken and uh, like the way that she gets things done is um, her presence is probably an energy I think is quite different. So yeah, but I, it is a very powerful way to be a woman, I think, and to way, and a way to engage with the world around you. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so you, you've said that you kind of, as we were talking about before, it's surrendered to fashion, even though it kind of seems to be part of your career path mm. in different iterations. Do you, having studied law um, and communications and kind of gone on these different paths, was there a relationship to your mum in, in like the, like the deferring of kind of coming to fashion because it wasn't um, academic enough or? Yeah, <clears throat> I guess. I guess maybe, I think I was very close, probably closer to my dad in temperament and the way that I think and things. And so I'm sure that that played a role in what I chose to study. Mm. Um, and so, but also I think with fashion, it's a struggle when you uh, are raised in an environment where you're being encouraged to kind of try and do good in mm. the world and mm. do things for other people and right. um, you know live in a way that has meaning. And so uh, I think that was where fashion, I always struggled with it. Uh, as, as do I sometimes. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And I think about it too when, you know, like I'm very lucky that I, I really get to choose what I write about most mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. And I know that everybody makes choices about the clothes they put on every day. And so when you start to have these conversations and people realize that you might be able to help them that you see I can see people searching for that and it resonates with them and that's when I feel like I'm in a good space when I'm doing the like interrogative investigative journalism that's where I really feel like the happiest but mm -hmm. there's less opportunity to write about that um so I think that I'm making my own peace with it but it's a struggle and it's also a struggle because the way society frames it as women's business yes. and society loves to dismiss it as like something not worthy of serious thought and that serious people don't care about. And I think that is extremely gendered and mm. extremely, um, it's, it really is about the richest men in the world who own fashion, uh, some of the richest men in the world own really big fashion companies mm -hmm. and there's a lot of exploitation that's happening all the way through um, and I think it's really important that as you know um, women who have had other careers maybe as people who work in this industry who do think about it seriously to really like you know do the work on those emotions that come up and like try as best we can to put them to one side and just really engage with this it's a huge industry you know it's like I, I don't want to get these stats wrong but 77% of the people employed in fashion in Australia are women and we employ more people than mining and wine mm. and beer maybe or maybe the exports are bigger than mining and beer but this isn't an industry with an enormous economic footprint and so every time 
you like jumping up and down trying to get someone's attention about something <clears throat> important. I think that we shouldn't feel ashamed. Just, you know, people who, you know, fashion is about a beauty and about making life more beautiful. And there are ways to do that that are inclusive and unproblematic. Mm. And that's like the space I think we can feel good about existing in. Yeah. And it's also something that causes people a lot of stress and anxiety. Like thinking about what to wear, how to, to wear it, yeah. how to represent themselves. How do I wear, you know, everybody feels better when they, when they feel like they look good. Mm. And that's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a universal human experience across cultures, across socioeconomic divides, you know, across everything. So I think it's okay. It is important to yeah. help people in that space. And you're doing a, a wonderful job with that, like obviously with the book, but also, you know, in your column um, you. at The Guardian and um, in your role as fashion editor at the Saturday paper. Um, and I do love your writing because I do think that you uh, allow the reader an opportunity to be educated without, you, you're not, there's no condescending tone to your work. It's not patronising, it's accessible. Um, and that creates the meaning for people, right? But in terms of like your your life and your your kind of your choices to this point, it obviously still as as it is for me. Whilst I think we're we're desperately tr trying to get other people to 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 find that connection to our clothes and what we wear, there's still just a love of the beauty of fashion. Yeah. Um. What what does that look like for you? Like, what do you love about clothing and the industry? So I really love, um, I love that feeling when you know that something looks good and you're maybe nervous about going somewhere or anxious about the people that you're meeting and you know that you're going to put on this particular outfit on and you're going to be able to walk into that room with a lot of confidence. I think that's really um, a gift. <laughs> um, I also, you know, I really like when I was studying law, I worked in law firms and I did work for a really great boutique law firm, so I shouldn't poo-poo it, but I was, when I was exposed to corporate culture, I found it quite confronting because fashion is full of big personalities and people who, were, who find a lot of joy in the world. And so going from kind of beautiful spaces where it's all like darling and gorgeous and, you know, yeah. where are the flowers and what's the light and... Um, don't you look amazing to like the wide leg pants and you know bad suits and yeah. the ballet flats in the <laughs> under the fluorescent lighting with the beige carpet and the beige ceilings and like I was found it very hard getting in the the elevator to go up to the, <laughs> the 52nd floor or whatever it was yeah um so there's that as well I do think that we're I feel really lucky to be doing this work and to be engaging with these people um uh, and to have, be surrounded by these creative thinkers every day, I think it's really a, a gift. And um, now as well, where the, where, when I'm outside of a, maybe a designer environment and I'm more engaging with academics and who are doing, and farmers who are doing other kinds of research, the, um, the minds and the intellect that's going into what they're thinking about and how they push the industry forward is also... Um, it's amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like we're usually wearing, we're usually touching some kind of textile all the time, mm. all the time, even when you're naked in bed, yeah. <laughs> you're touching sheets, yeah. you know? So I think that's also something to, to question and consider about how this industry impacts us every day. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of your personal wardrobe, um, 
you you start chapter one of I I have a black dress. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is that is that your go-to? Is is having a black dress the place that it gives you the the joy of dressing? That dress actually got lost <laughs> in between my when I left Paris and came back during COVID. Like there is a missing bag of clothes, and I don't know where they are. Um, and so that dress is gone. For someone who's emotionally connected to the, their wardrobe, I'm sure that's pretty devastating. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I'm determined to find it. I think it's probably still in my friend's car when I get back over there. Um, so I don't actually have a black dress at the moment. Okay. That's a go-to. I'm yeah. wearing less black as I'm getting older. Right. <laughs> um, I'm trying to wear more, I try to wear more colour. Um, but I definitely always have an eye out f for a replacement version of that dress because right. <laughs> there's something, like as the way I describe it in the book, knowing that you could put it on and feel good and walk out the door mm. was um, it, like it, it's a real godsend. Um, I'm trying to think what in in my wardrobe is a version of that at the moment. I don't really have something that like fits that role specifically. Mm. I have a really beautiful black caftan that um, is like long sleeved and like really impeccable detailing that goes down to the floor that's made of cotton that probably now if I'm like feeling a bit like, well, I don't really want to go to this. Yeah. That's what I will put on um, and, you know, throw a blazer over the top and it's very like off I go. Uh, so, yeah, there I guess there still is a black dress <laughs> in my wardrobe that's the go-to. So yeah. what, what is, what's kind of propelled you to find more colour in your wardrobe? Is it part of this idea of dopamine dressing coming out of the pandemic? Do you think that you like the industry at, at trying to find more joyful ways of self-expression or...? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I definitely, um, also I think while I was in Paris, I felt a little bit, um, a lot of people, well, just a little bit, the all black kind of arty Melbourne look mm. um, <laughs> is, and like there will be people that are like, you still wear black all the time, <laughs> but um, is was something that I felt just like a need to differentiate myself from. Right. I wanted, so I wanted to like, and also just, I felt, I think like with your, my face getting a bit older and I have dark hair and dark features, I felt every time I put black on, I looked a bit like witchy or, you know, uh, not that there's anything wrong with being a witch, um, <laughs> or, you know, older or, so I wanted I, to I be. feel like, because I've got a Greek background, I, when I'm in all black, I feel like a little, yeah, yeah, like a yes. little Greek grandmother. So I navy and browns are my my black because I just yeah. don't I I've never and they, like I I've never been able to maintain myself to the kind of elusive mysterious taking myself very seriously kind of conditions of the fashion industry yeah. you know and all those stereotypes and I'm often in a, a lot of bright bold kind <laughs> of <laughs> like the, the dress you're wearing now like it offsets your eyes like this is yeah. the, the kind of doing those I think and that's the beauty of color when you're wearing things that works you know work well with your complexion you can like draw things out in other ways and I don't like wear a lot of makeup and all those things and I think that if it's like no makeup and all black it's a little bit like austere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you you have a love of light right and it's yeah. again it feels like there were certain things written in the stars for you because Lucien has a, a yeah, connotation it means bringer of light. Of light. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your love of light and how that then relates to how you get dressed. 
Yeah, so I'm really quite obsessed with, I sleep with the curtains open because I like to wake up with the sun. And so, although it's getting earlier and earlier in Sydney. <laughs> um, so I think that the love of light, it, you know, it really is about when I'm feeling good and when I'm um, in the right space where I can be creative, it, it will really come down to like um, how much light is in the room and how like uh, uh, how that's making things in the room look and how it's making me feel. So um, when it comes to the way that I dress, I guess it's about, and one thing that I think is really beautiful with natural fibers is the way that the light will pick up on the different way that a fabric is woven or knitted or, um, and the little, and the inflections. And maybe that's another thing from Paris. The photographer who was like the visual director of the brand that I spent time working with there was, he really, he didn't really light his pictures. He would use like a big flash on his camera if it was dark. And it was very much about capturing certain elements from the sun. And it, because the clothes were so beautiful, it allowed him to um, really show off all of the, the different um, ways that the fabrics were constructed and the way that a sleeve was constructed and, mm. or a seam or and I think that for me um, that you know ability to kind of make something look really beautiful using light is extremely important in the industry and also helps with our daily kind of life and the way that we're feeling mm. in a room. I find that yeah. really interesting because I haven't I mean I, it obviously forms part of how you think about clothes and you know even when you're building content, like you're saying, yeah. even when I'm doing it kind of um, fairly crudely on my own, you know, you, you do the beautiful pleating or the, the when I think about it, it, it you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I think it wasn't until I heard you or, or read something that you'd written that I was like, oh, that actually, make, as a stylist, that should that should resonate with me more, but it's kind of a very subtle mm. kind of understanding of how we connect that natural world to what we're, what we're wearing and like walking down the street and knowing that the light is hitting us in different ways yeah. um, and how that connects us like nature to our clothing. I hadn't really kind of digested that before. Yeah, and I think for me that a kind of um, three-dimensional experience of the world or, you know, even more than that, when we're talking about like the breeze and you know how a fabric feels when when we're walking and there's like wind around or or there is harsh sunlight um all of those things come into play to how we feel good in yeah. garments and they're a really important part of I think understanding why polyester sucks yes <laughs> so much because it's you know, in plastic, it doesn't breathe. It, it, you know, moves differently to, to a natural fibre. It's not as crisp. Um, I think that when we kind of engage with what it means to have clothes that we want to keep for a long time, we really have to think about how they feel on our body against our skin. Do they make us, like, feel good? Are they pleasurable to wear? Mm. It's more than just how do I look? Um, is this, like you know, is this comfortable? It's also add in that third element of how does it carry me through my day? Yeah. 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 Um, and so you've hit a point about, you know, like just finding those things that last in our wardrobe for longer, but obviously working in the fashion industry, there is this kind of obsession or has traditionally been this obsession with newness and like 
finding that fresh thing, that modern thing. Um, do you, what's your relationship to that? And do you think that's changing? So, uh, it's a tricky thing, right? Because we're all guilty of, um, if I just find that perfect pair of boots, I'm going to be, you know, somehow I'll be more cool or I'll be more desirable. You know, I'll be more confident. I'll, um, my life will improve, uh, <laughs> and, you know, in whatever way. And I think working in the industry, um, I've never really been a, a great shopper because when you're spending nine to five or more than that, working with clothes, <laughs> the last thing that you want to do is walk into a store. Yeah. And so, and also there's a, a privilege that comes along with it because you, you know, you don't need to necessarily buy clothes because yeah. they're right in front of you. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, but the other thing I think about this newness search is similar with the searching for a dopamine hit on Instagram. Yeah. It, it never really satiates what you need. And there are studies that show that when you're shopping for something new, the dopamine hit comes before you've paid for it. Mm. As soon as you've paid for it, the dopamine hit disappears. And so when you understand that, I think hopefully we can have a little bit of a moment to like step away from the like, oh, I'm, I'm searching for this thing now. But of course I still do it. You know, like mm. when I was trying to figure out what I was going to wear to my book launch. Yeah. It was like uh, all of a sudden I was like on every website searching for the perfect <laughs> dress and I can and I could feel the the feeling of that searching and I ask anyone else who's doing that right now to like stop and pause and think about how how you're actually feeling when you're like in on the hunt mode and I don't think those are good hormones that are running yeah. through our bodies um, yeah. and uh, you know it's, yeah, I think we do all need to take a step back and pause with our consumption so that it becomes more like, okay, here is an option yeah. <laughs> that I might need in my wardrobe. I need a new coat, for example. So I'm going to try on, you know, this coat. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to see how I feel in a week. I might come back and try it on again and then add in, you know, uh, how long will, am I going to wear it for? How good is the quality is it going to last 10 years yeah you know I have this code of my grandfather's um that's from 1934 and like it is in impeccable condition mm. um but still I'm like <laughs> um one of the things that was in the bag that got lost was the coat that I write about in the dress in yeah the, in sundress yeah um and I when I'm going overseas next year I need a coat and I don't want to take my grandfather's one because mm -hmm. it's so precious yeah so there's like you know it's never it is never ending this idea that we need to fill a gap in our wardrobe but what I would like to impart is that there is more comfort in filling that gap with something that you will really love and wear for a long time mm. and so we're reducing that time where we're searching for new things yeah because it's not about a new thing every week it's like you know three or four beautiful new things a year yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's um that is quite a lofty goal for, for yes. people but it is a mindset and I think one of the tips um you've shared is if you're doing online shopping just like let it sit in your inbox because just the joy of putting it in the inbox and not purchasing kind of you still you get that and then you get to revisit it in a few days and 
you know, I, and I of, I often do that. Yeah. And then I mean, I'm often obviously just searching for vintage fashion. Yeah. Um, but even then, there, there's still a consumption point with that. Yeah. And it's like you you do you can get excited in the moment because you might find this beautiful designer that has some artful details to the the garment. And it's a good price and, you know, like it, it all yep. feels like, yeah, it's fine because I'm giving money to a charity and it's yep. recycled fashion, but I might not find it as beautiful in a few days. Yep. The other thing that I try to do when I'm buying things, which I think because you, like you would know, you, when your brain is so geared around fashion, you see it all the time. It's very easy to calculate things very fast. So if I'm buying something, I often just think, what's like, how am I going to wear it 10 different ways? And yeah. that's what gets me excited about that garment is to think about its multiple use and because yeah. then I know it belongs in my wardrobe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know that it's also going to give new life to something else in your wardrobe. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and that's kind of a sweet spot, isn't it? Yeah, because it, well, it, it induces creativity mm. um, and, yeah, it, it finds that excitement for something like new yeah. without it being a whole like catastrophe of catastrophe of new stuff yeah it's um yeah giving as you said giving new life yeah exactly mm -hmm. um so you know obviously um i can wax lyrical about your book and i have I, anyone i've spoken to whilst i've been reading it i'm like you have to read this book oh, oh my god you. i've been so educated and it's it, as i said the the optimism and, and hope for some some solutions that actually are meaningful to climate change um it's just it's 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 nice to think that there is something out there, um, but I I think that like you, the the thing that I appreciate about the book is that there's reverence for the past and like what we've what we've learnt or what we need to learn, um, and I think that that's kind of a nice refreshing point of understanding how we move forward. Um, so like regenerative farming is not necessarily a new technique in itself um, but I know you kind of spoke about it at the beginning but do you want to just give a high level understanding of what regenerative farming actually is? Yeah sure so it's complicated and, and it, it's amorphous but it's the three key things are when someone says regenerative um, the things that the way that you can think about it because it's getting thrown a bit about like sustainability now mm -hmm. and I actually right. do think that this is what you need to, and we need to know. There has to be um, more biodiversity on the farm. Um, there has to be improved outcomes for communities and there has to be improved soil health. Mm -hmm. And so if we're hitting those three things, what we can, we can call that regenerative agriculture. So what regenerative agriculture is, is like a kind of beyond organic way of farming. So it's not just not spraying chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides. Um, it's, it's more than that because we're driving positive outcomes across those three things, biodiversity, community, soil health. So we want to see, um, no chemicals is really important because that's really important for community outcomes because what we have with industrial agriculture is a very toxic cycle of farmers being in debt to chemical companies, spraying these fertilizers and pesticides on their land to drive yields and to keep bugs away. But what it means is that they're constantly, um, their overheads are high and they're also at the same time destroying the health of their land, mm. not to mention the complications with health when their families are exposed to these things. So 
when we stop spraying those fertilizers and pesticides, we need other things in place to drive um, the productivity of the plants and to also obviously keep pests away. And what true regenerative agriculture does, it restores the natural ecosystems and cycles so that um, the soil is being fertilized um, by multiple species of plants by having the ground constantly covered, by not tilling the soil. So all of these things allow kind of like the microbiotic community in the soil to foster and to kind of be developed. And so when you have healthy soil through these techniques, uh, you have um, improved productivity, it's sequestering carbon, it's got better water retention and better water retention is obviously really important because it helps with um, resilience to things like droughts and also to floods because the soil is able to soak um, the, water. the water in yeah. instead of getting washed away. And then also if you have constant ground cover and constant plants growing on the soil, you're also increasing the exchange of um, through photosynthesis from the sun. So that's where the name sundressed comes yeah. from. So it's this idea that what we're wearing is things that have been generated by the light of the sun. Mm. And so the photosynthesis exchange means that you've got... Um, active roots in the soil at all times. And so the sun is coming down with a mixture of carbon and oxygen and water and um, being exchanged with um, the microorganisms in the soil. And so I know it's starting to get a little bit technical, so I'll yeah. rein it in. But yeah. uh, what that means is we've got healthy plants above the ground, healthy soil, and then also better outcomes. And what it, the result is a, <clears throat> a stronger, more beautiful fiber over time. You can't just switch off chemicals straight away and mm. expect to get good results, but Farmers say their lands come back three to five years, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then also with the biodiversity, it's not just about you need multi-species of plants to do this because each plant exchanges nutrients with the soil in a different way. So you never want to see like a single field planted with the same crop, um, but it's other species too. It's native grasses, it's trees, it's birds, it's insects. And so when we have all of these things operating in harmony together, we're kind of restoring nature's cycles and when you do that the farmers will um, advocate that you know will say say that nature will kind of start to take care of itself yes and it reminded me we at home I watched the David Attenborough um, documentary with my kids and yeah. that ability for nature it's so it's incredible because it's incredibly humbling to think how powerful nature is in restoring itself when you just leave it the fuck alone. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, exactly. like yeah. Chernobyl as an example is mm. like such a, a mind-blowing example of, of that, right? Yeah. And so when I was reading your book, it was bringing <laughs> all those fields. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I was just up in Darwin over the weekend and we went on like an airboat and yeah. to like look at some crocodiles and the croc wrangler was talking about how we know there's a really epic wet season coming up there because the crocodiles are all mating early and the flowers are all coming into bloom early. So he was like, nature knows, nature's mm -hmm. operating with, the, with this intelligence and this knowledge that's been going for, you know, <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And so like, you know, he was showing us that it's the crocs and the and the flowers. They're all trying to come in early so that it, it's done before things get really chaotic. Yeah. Um, wet season wise. So, I, like, I just every time I hear somebody who's working on the land talk because you know I'm not a farmer, yeah. <laughs> obviously <laughs> talk about it. Um, it's so exciting. Yeah. And this idea that we can have this deference for nature is also I find it really calming mm. <laughs> because I when we try to put in 
when we when you think about the scope of the problem that we're dealing with, obviously humans we have a role to play in mm. fixing it. But the idea that um, there's this strength and power in nature to kind of take care of itself, I find really like, okay, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be. All if right. we just give it some space to do that, we. It, it can recover. I think it does yeah. allow you the anxiety around the, it's almost the intangibility of the crisis hmm. eases when you, and, and you're seeing lived examples, you're seeing through, you know, reading your book, farmers giving the land that time and like three to five years probably does feel like a long time for them because that's income and that's their livelihood. But yeah. at the same time in the scheme of things, it's it's not a long time at all for something to foster for us to grow something that we want yeah. um, but also for it to give back and actually improve the conditions rather than yeah. just be be better you know like that's yes. that exactly and the key is the other thing is as once the farmers are farming this way they don't have big overheads because you don't need the same kind of machinery and you don't need the chemicals yeah. so what you're seeing then is a better return for them they're getting much a much more profitable crop yield and also because the fiber is more desirable they're getting a better price for it so we really we want farmers um, to have um, sustainable and you know good income because that's how they can invest back into other things like solar power tractors and you know stuff that where we're really able to see kind of the innovation working and things coming down so it's really important you know Farming is problematic in a lot of ways, but we want the people who are doing these things and growing our food and growing our mm. fibre to have really um, good sources of income that are also not stressful. Yeah. <laughs> and so they can spend more time with their families and then also have um, the ability to invest and push farming forward too. Yeah. Yeah. And so going back to that kind of connection to history, um, obviously, and you've touched on it in, in the book, there's, there's connection to the way regenerative farming sorry, kind of connects with Indigenous land practices. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to just give a, a yeah. more information about that? So, so regenerative agriculture draws on the kind of way that Indigenous tribes all over the world, although obviously they're not a monolith, even in Australia yes. they're not a monolith, um, kind of a land stewards. And so that um, deference to nature is say in indigenous communities here is obviously really prevalent because they see the land as their ancestors and there's you know um you know trees and um, locations where there's you know birthing is carried out or justice is carried out and it's all um kind of this idea that we the world is supposed to be left as we found it mm. it's, we're not supposed to come in and change it and um that extends to the idea of ownership of land and and other things <clears throat> so the acknowledging indigenous communities along these landscapes and how that they've always kind of farmed is really important um, there has also been regenerative agriculture operating for a long time through places like france and um and um, other Western cultures too. So I think it's important. And every time I speak to a farmer here, they'll be like, well, we've been doing this for, <laughs> for you know, for decades. It's not new. Um, and of course it's not new. What we want to do is make it more prevalent than industrial agriculture. Yeah. And so um, doing that with respect to and paying respect to Indigenous communities, I think is extremely important. Um, and, you know, involving them and bringing them on this journey is also really important. 
I struggle to talk about it because I, I feel like I, I don't want to try to say that every Indigenous culture has always done this. And because, well, you don't want to simplify any no. of those conversations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or even try to kind of broadly, you know, describe um, belief systems. You know, there were 500 different clan groups just in Australia yes. <laughs> so, with the Indigenous population here. And I'm also really just... Um, want to be respectful because you know I'm eighth generation Australian um my family came here on the first fleet right and uh they were sheep farmers and I we don't know what they got up to but I'm going to assume it wasn't very good and so <laughs> I think that it's important too to kind of hold space and not try to tell the stories of of this group of people but um I've said it on I think I said it on my sister's podcast but you know I've got a small platform and if that can ever help somebody who wants to share their stories and I'm very much here to do that but yeah yeah but um I think I think that for me the the point is that that there's a lot of beautiful history yes. um that connects us to nature not just in a practical way but in a spiritual and emotional way yeah. and you know this pursuit of newness has lost sight of that context and yeah. um kind of just finding ways to you know, understand that a bit better, I think will help us all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the the language that's used um, by, you say, I quote Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a Native American and a botanist in the book, and the language that she uses to describe nature, if you've ever read any of her work, is really amazing. And this, you know, she will talk about how you often, and now that I've read it, I often see it, you'll often in nature see blue and yellow, um, purple and yellow flowers together and she's like this kind of inherent artistry of the natural world is something that's also really really special and this also the deference that they talk about is basically being like nature has stuff to teach us we're like the younger brothers and sisters mm -hmm. of of the natural world of mother nature and so this idea that we could come in and tame it is like very foolish <laughs> so bringing it back to you You've obviously lived in quite urban environments, London and Paris and Melbourne, now Sydney. Um, what's, you know, obviously in this pursuit for all of us to kind of go back to nature, what's brought you to this place? Yeah, so really it was during the pandemic um, when I was like, I had obviously was in the process of losing my business as everything kicked off because it was based around fashion weeks and we couldn't travel anymore. Um, and I would start every day by going for a walk in the forest. And it was, I really noticed how, um, you know, I could wake up feeling anxious and after an hour and a half of walking or running or whatever I was doing and just like paying attention to where the birds were or where the kangaroos were or, you know, um, the way the light was coming through the trees and just like feeling how different um, the air was as, you know, there as opposed to in the suburbs. Um, it kind of was a really beautiful opportunity to be reminded of how important and powerful um, nature is. Mm. I also always felt like in Europe and in London and Paris, someone would be like, I'll take you to the beach or I'll take you to this forest and you would get there as an Australian and you'd be like... <laughs> a little underwhelming. Yeah, this is not a beach. This is not a forest. This is like a sad little patch of trees. I can still see a road, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but you get desperate for it though, yes. right? I, like I yeah. lived in New York, as I was saying, and I remember, you know, the, 
the summers are so cripplingly hot yeah. and I would catch the train out to, um, you know, like where Coney Island is, wherever, you know, just to the water and, and it would be incredibly underwhelming to go yeah. for a swim in the ocean. Yeah. But it was better than not, you yes. know. Um, yeah. I mean, we're so lucky here to be surrounded by the nature that we have. Like it is awesome in the truest sense of the word. And um, I love getting in the ocean here for the same reason, even when it's freezing in the middle of winter, because you can feel your heart slow down. Mm. And that's really important. Like that sense of like, oh, there's something much bigger than us. There's something, you know, that's so beautiful that we have a duty to take care of. And that's really um there's so much solace in it. And even when I was just up in the Northern Territory, that, like I just, before I went to bed, I was like sitting up and looking at the stars and I was like, this is insane. Like mm. the, the, the way that the whole sky was like speckled with these tiny little diamonds, it was just completely um, so awe-inspiring. And I, when we're living in these fast-paced lives and it's hard to to stop and to slow down and to put Instagram away and to, you know, stop looking at the news and all of these things, finding that time, even if it's, you know, just, just on the weekends or whatever it is, if you can do it every day, I think it's absolutely worth it. Even just watching the sunset, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it is important. And I think as Australians, because we've grown up in such proximity to some of the most luscious, luscious, wild, <laughs> you know, you know, um, yeah, places in, in the world, it's, it's really in us. <laughs> yeah. We need it. So, and, and that's interesting because obviously like the impetus for me thinking about this podcast season is not just uh, obviously because it's um, a topical conversation and something that needs to be considered, but the history of our fashion industry um, mm. is predicated on a relationship to our land, like a yeah. Cobra hats, dries the bone jackets, yeah. our swimwear ranges, like a, they're, it's very much connected to how we represent ourselves, how we're known um, overseas, yeah. the kind of iconic symbols of how we dress. Yeah, um, that's so true. Uh, but yeah. I, I'm interested to understand from your perspective, like obviously you felt this kind of personal connection and emotional connection and return to nature. But how do you suggest other people find that connection and love of nature and their love of clothes. How do they put those things together? Is it just a matter of finding the joy in wearing natural fibres or do you think there's something else there? So I think, uh, I think that we need to kind of um, bring the two, really bring the two things together in our minds. So when you put on a woolen jumper um, and you know that it's come from the back of a sheep, like we all know that in theory, but like going to the farms for me and seeing these fleeces and of course they come off and they're gray and they're dirty and you know, it smells a bit funky and you're like, oh my God, I feel <laughs> very far from Paris right now. Yeah. But <laughs> once they had been cleaned and the, the wool is so fine, like the reason why we have dominance over the market in the world of the woolen market in the world is because we have merino sheep and their fleeces are so fine. And it is honestly like, they are soft and silky and fluffy. And when you see that and then you look at the jumper <laughs> and you feel how light and springy wool is and you think about how warm it keeps you and you think about how long woolen jumpers last for when you take care of them and you wear them for a really long time. And the reason why 
they are so beautiful is because this lovely sheep grew them <laughs> through the wool, um, then I think there is, it just does start to feel a little bit magical, wonderful, you know. Um, so and it's, it's finding out the origin, the origin story, story of our garments. And the same with cotton, absolutely. <laughs> Whether they've been brought into the world by a man in a tuxedo or not. <laughs> One of the things and the, the way that you present this information so nicely in your book is that you do dot it with like personal anecdotes of your own kind of wardrobe experiences and um, your own style stories throughout the book, which is what makes it so digestible and lovely to read. Um, but, uh, you know, you, the, there is this sense of talking about clothes as memory inducing and kind of holding uh, like a lot of meaning. Um, and when we when we can associate that meaning with our wardrobes, then we hold on to those clothes and we cherish them. We don't take our grandfather's coat overseas <laughs> yeah. like on a whim. Um, but and and certainly, I know that um, that's very much the case for myself. And I always say it's not an accident. I lost my mum and my grandmother, and I was cleaning out their whole apartment and finding all these bits um, that you know their clothes. And you know, obviously, their clothes were really um, for me big markers of who they were, and 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 photographs in my mind of what of aspiration and you know like joy and looking up to my mum and my grandmother as a as a young girl mm -hmm. and so I literally had to pack up their whole apartment all the doilies all the candlesticks what have you and then a week later I started a podcast exploring people's connection to their clothes and what it means to them so there, there's obviously a very strong sense of legacy um yep. in terms of what I you know in, in not consciously set out to do but it, it's it's become something I've become aware of mm -hmm. um you've dedicated your book to your dad do yeah. you think this is you kind of giving a bit of his legacy like your your life um yeah. honoring his legacy yeah uh, I yeah I, I'm I do I he always wanted me to write that was like his big he was always like when I was you know meandering around through my 20s trying to figure out what to do he was like you know writing was the thing that he you know would always kind of kind of try to bring me back to so there's definitely that element there. He was also writing about the environment when he passed away. So writing the book, I had his dictionary and his thesaurus beside me, um, you know, and those kind of yeah legacy objects that are like imbued with those memories. It felt really um, important to have that kind of touch point there. Um, yeah, and I, I think this is something that we all experience loss when we move through life and it is you know Joan Didion writes about it in the year of magical thinking which I don't know if you've read but you should read it it's about how she couldn't bring herself to throw away her husband's shoes mm. <laughs> you know because she's like but he might come back and he might need them <laughs> <laughs> and it is this really interesting kind of um way to connect with the with people from the past um and something very tangible that it is about the way they live their lives and I think when we're thinking about new clothes and um, Albert Albert, who I write about in the Silk chapter, um, would talk about how he would try to design things that had a sense of memory because he wanted everything he designed to become like an heirloom that would mm. be passed through. Mm. And that I also think is a good way to, if, you know, when you're shopping, mm. be like, like this dress you've got on is beautiful. Like that's mm. the kind of dress that, you know, if, you know, if, 
you know, your children. I've got a daughter. Yeah, yeah I've got yeah. a daughter, yeah. She's not she's... into floral or feminine <laughs> details, um, but I'm hoping that might change by the time she can fit into my wardrobe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I often, when I'm going through things, you know, trying to clear out my wardrobe and stuff, think about what my niece might love to have to yeah. wear. And um, right now the collection of clothes is looking very good for her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's scoring well <laughs> yeah I'm just waiting for the day where she comes downstairs and something of mine that she's like cut the hem off which is what I used to do to my mom's clothes yeah. <laughs> and be like <laughs> um that yeah so there's but also when we're shopping you know I think it's really great to like look ahead and be like what how how will I feel about this in 10 mm. years in 20 years is this something that is going to stand the test of time yes and that my niece would find or your daughter would find, you know, in the dress-up box and be like, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah, this is so cool, Mum. <laughs> and going back to your your personal emotional connection to your clothing, is there something that um, you hold from your, your dad that is quite special to you? Um, his dictionary and his thesaurus. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't have any of his clothes. I'm just trying to think. Did, did you get emotional writing the book? Yes, <laughs> but um, but wasn't the, the emotions weren't really about I, the, writing the dedication. I was quite emotional, um, and there were times where I felt like his presence was really close to me because uh, I was also writing it in Fitzroy in Melbourne, and that mm. was where he started his career. So it felt very um, there were lots of nice synergies there. Um, but and definitely at at moments when it felt hard, I felt his presence around because, of course, you know I don't you kind of get into a big project and uh, you know have these moments where you're like why on earth did I think I could do this <laughs> I don't know uh, what that feels like at all <laughs> just having done vivid no <laughs> Steffi can tell you yeah. <laughs> there were many days where I was like why did I think that I could do this on my own <laughs> yeah. why did anyone else think I could do it yeah. on my own? Um, yeah and his presence was definitely yeah. there for that um he was a very big kind of you know advocate for just like just finish it and then yeah and then you can move on to the next thing. So that those words were in your mind while you're writing in the book. Yeah, or not? I guess so. And the presence, his presence, I guess, was yeah. the main thing. Um, yeah, and just I guess you kind of have to push ahead and like try to convince yourself that it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of your wardrobe, then what? Like, what are the things that you are most emotionally connected to, or and, and say a lot about who you are? So the coat of my grandfather's is a really special piece um, and I have some jewellery of my grandmother's as well that I absolutely have strong emotional um, connections to. I'm trying to think about what else. Um, I guess if, if the, reader, oh, sorry, the reader or the listener was um, kind of to get a, a picture of who you are through a garment, what would it be? Yeah, so I have this... Um, um, oversized um, blazer that's alpaca um, and I found it at um, an op shop for like five dollars in Gippsland mm -hmm. and then I had it tailored so that the um, it fit me like slightly better and that's of something that I really do wear a lot and all mm -hmm. the time because for me it's like I, I like clothes that can kind of take me anywhere so that's something that I'll wear to yoga over yoga gear and then also to you know, out for dinner or to coffee or um, or whatever. But my style, it's very much, um, it's very kind of androgynous a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And then there are these kind of accents of femininity as well that I like. And I think I like to play off the two things. When I had longer hair, I've had short hair for quite a long time, but when I had longer hair, it was easier to be a little bit 
um, more boyish all the time. But I think with the shorter hair and getting a bit older, it's kind of nice to bring in some more kind of like softer, prettier pieces as and well. And is the androgyny a reflection of your own quiet feminism? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the androgyny is just um, a strong part of kind of who I am and how I've always kind of identified. It's probably a little bit driven by, yeah, by feminism, I suppose. Um, the first time I cut off all my hair, I was 11 and my father was <laughs> furious. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's like, you know, we're all, I think, um, gender is becoming more fluid, which is a really good thing. And it's a really fun thing to be able to play with as a woman. And, um, and I think it definitely makes getting dressed more interesting. Yeah. And do you think also like that ability to wear something everywhere, is that a reflection on like your desire to be in different places, to, to enjoy different environments? Because obviously you've lived in different cities and you've got this lovely return to nature. Like I can't even imagine how mentally exciting it would be to go out to these farms and kind of be thrown in this different, you know, in yeah. a different perspective. Yeah. Um, did you like that? Like the... Yeah, definitely. I think that, I, th I think the ability to be comfortable anywhere is really important to me. And the mark of like a good wardrobe is one that can kind of take you anywhere mm -hmm. um, without like anything kind of sitting out of place. Um, the farms is interesting. It's always a little bit confronting for me because um, when you've worked in the industry for such a long time and you think you're well versed in where fabrics come from and what they and what it takes and all these things and then you meet the people who are really like on that frontier dealing with the elements every day yeah. um it's uh, yeah there's something about it that really is very humbling mm. and so um and I'm, it's always the hardest place to get to put on clothes for because <laughs> yeah. you don't. Like I, yeah, I, my wardrobe's not necessarily geared for, for the farms, No, and you don't want to no. be like, oh, here comes the fashion editor from yeah. the city. Like, yeah, yeah it's <laughs> like that episode of Sex in the City. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about how your favourite coat is something that you repaired. And I know in the closet clinic, you you do a really good job of uh, giving practical advice to the readers uh, about how to look after your clothes. Mm. What are probably some of the most weird or interesting kind of tips that um, you've kind of discovered along the way to help kind of care for, for your clothing? So I think the biggest one is it's not really weird or that in, well, I, I think that interesting <laughs> is um, you have to move really fast if you don't want something to get stained. So right. anytime you notice like, a drop of anything um don't think I'll just get it out later go straight to the bathroom go straight to the laundry and um flush it through with um cold water and then if it's oil use a little bit of some kind of detergent it could be hand soap can be anything and get it out because you don't want the stain once the stain is set it's a different set of problems right and that's really a, a really important takeaway another one that um people found really interesting was how to buy good quality clothes and um, when I'm talking to people about that, for me, the first thing I look at in a garment is always what it's made of. And that's going to give you an indication if it's 100% natural fibres, cotton, wool, linen, silk, hemp, mm -hmm. um, then that's, uh, you know, you're, you know, you're buying something that's worth more than something with polyester. Polyester is inherently cheap. That's why it is so prevalent. And then also look at the seams. So you don't want any seams with raw edges. You want them all to have to either be sewn down or overlocked. 
because um, that's an indication of how long it's taken to make the garment. Right. Um, and, yeah, but in terms of care, um, yeah, it really is we're taking care of your clothes is really don't leave them sitting anywhere for too long, um, especially in humid environments like in Sydney. You don't want them all jam-packed together. You want them to have airflow circulating between them. Um, you can get rid of mould from like leather products like handbags and things like that, but you have to be really careful because obviously if you leave just a little spore, it can come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and also I think the other big one is to enlist professional help. I, I, as much as I would love to be like an expert sewer, I also think that we need these people in our community and, you know, it like it's part of a really thriving economy to have artisans and tailors yeah. and, and, you know, cobblers um, who have really great businesses. And so, you know, spending some time on your weekend, dropping things off to be repaired or, you know, shoes to be topied. Um, that's a, like a really nice way to like build up a community of like um, of small relationships, which I think are really a key to feeling connected uh, and also to supporting this those people in our economies as well because if we lose those skills we're going to be in trouble and they are dying out yeah you obviously sundressed gives us a lovely kind of um hopeful outlook to uh, ways that we can move forward in the fashion industry but what is uh left for you lucian what's your kind of future <laughs> so the, the book is released in um, the US, Canada and the UK mm -hmm. uh, early next year. So I'm going over there and I'm going to um, connect with some of the farmers and people that I wrote about that I haven't been able to see and, and also some of the designers, which I'm really excited about yeah. um, in those cities. And so that's one thing. I have um, a second book in the works and that's kind of based on my column in the Guardian right. Closet Clinic. Yeah. So that's also um when I find have a moment, <laughs> that's when my attention's gotta go. Uh and I think that there's a huge opportunity to turn this into a TV show as well, because like kind of like a chef's table vibe. Um so those are like the kind of things on my horizon. And then, you know, um it's a really um I think, you know, when you come to something like this a bit later on, you know, like I, the, I was in fashion before this, but I was doing very different work. And mm -hmm. so I'm very aware of what a privilege it is to be uh, doing the work that I do. And I'm sure you feel the same about the podcast. And so, um, yeah, I sitting in this space and really enjoying being in this space and writing for different publications and working with the editors I already work with is um yeah, it's nice. It's also nice to not be working on a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the ways I like to finish my interviews, Lucienne, is to ask people what they'll be wearing when they're, you know, 70, 80 years old. So I'm guessing it's going to be most of your existing wardrobe, but what are those pieces you'd like to see in your wardrobe? What are those coveted parts of your curated art collection that you'd like to add in that aren't there yet? Well, I think by the time I'm 70 or 80, I hope to just be leaning more and more into colour and kind of just like really um, not, you know, feel any need to conform at all. So, um, yeah, I, but I can't really imagine now um, how that's going to evolve. I think 70 or 80, God. Hopefully we still have a planet. <laughs> we will, because yeah. of regenerative agriculture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, thank you so much for joining me today. Good luck with the book launching overseas. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If fashion was written into Lucy Ann's origin story, as her name would tell, so was her love of light. Whether it be from the sun, the stars or the soil, Lucy Ann's reconnection to land and light has given her the space to find her natural place in this world. As she moves away from the harsh, dark spaces of corporate life to a place that balances the tension between purpose and beauty, Lucy Ann's style has come to embrace lightness, colour and comfort, and her story offers us a glimmer of light for the future of fashion.